We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. everyone and welcome to Archaeo Animals, the podcast about zoo archaeology. On this month's episode we'll be looking at something a little bit different. We'll be looking at pathologies and what can we learn from animal disease in the archaeological record. With you as always, Simona Falanga and my co-host Alex Fitzpatrick. And thumbs up for the worst intro of uh, the last 22 episodes, which is the entirety of them. No, it's not that bad. I probably do worse. I don't know. I barely know what we're talking about, like, half the time on this podcast. It's great for establishing that trust with listeners. It's like, oh, I'll listen to that podcast. They really know what they're on about after they literally said on air, I'm not sure I, I know what I'm on about. To be fair, that's actually a really good segue to our topic today because it's actually an incredibly understudied aspect of zooarchaeology, and that's pathologies, which I think a lot of people kind of always associate pathologies with like diseases and things like that. Uh, but it, at least uh, when we talk about it archaeologically, it can also refer to physical injuries and trauma, stuff like that. It's just very, it's, it's, it's very hard, like everything else in zooarchaeology. Unsurprising to no one. No, no, nothing could be easy in archaeology, but it is useful. I mean, it, it's probably most useful because a lot of times it shows how a person or an animal died or, you know, why the body was deposited there. All these kind of things that you can derive just from these, uh, what could be, you know, really small little details or something horrific and awful to look at, you know, like rickets. <laughs> but yeah, like, and most important of all, so like gathering this information about uh, ancient animals tells us more about how they interacted with humans. And sort of what kind of relationship they had, whether it was a beloved pet or whether the animal was put to work. And if so, what kind of work, whether it was kept captured, like the, the, the options are endless. So <laughs> just whatever, whatever, like whatever the humans did with those animals, you might learn about it with pathology or you, you may not. <laughs> because not all patholo- very little pathologies actually affect the bone. So chances are you won't know. Yeah, that's like the the funny thing is like if if you can uh, idea it, you know that's amazing. You can learn so much from it, but because you know you're only dealing with bones for the most part, there's a really good chance you're not gonna figure out all the pathologies that were associated with a body, especially with diseases, because not all diseases obviously affect bones. But when it comes to zooarchaeology, one of the interesting things about looking at specifically diseases and pathologies is, you know, how do hereditary pathologies 
get passed down due to human influence, because obviously, as we enter, you know, domestication, humans are influencing the breeding patterns of animals. Uh, it could be a functional thing and more of a, a cultural thing. It's a really interesting topic that has very little research done on it. I mean, not not to say that there's no research done on it. There's a, a lot of books and stuff written about it. But like, if you compare it to human pathology, I think it's pretty understudied. But in a way, it's kind of what it's... I don't mean to say that it's necessarily easier with humans. But of course, with human osteology, you just have the one species to worry about. Yeah. With exactly. animals, because different diseases will look different in different species. Yeah. Wow. No. Oh, so, so deep. <laughs> <laughs> But it's true, though, like, you know, you're not it's not going to be a one to one uh, transition. Obviously, some things will be very similar, especially if you're talking about trauma. You know, you break a leg on a pig, you break a leg on a human. It's going to kind of look the same. But then there's a, a lot more going on with animals. And I guess one of the things that we don't have um, well, as many comparative specimens for starters also the fact that yeah. uh, humans have been looking after each other a lot longer than we've been looking after animals. So chances are, if the animal was really ill, it might have been cold yeah. before it started to show symptoms or started to show bone modification. It's not going to show up as much. Wow, calling out humans for their speciesism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Bastard agrees. <laughs> of course she does. Yeah, true. But yeah, and also, um, I think, I feel like someone told me this. I don't know if there's like actual uh, evidence to back it up. But I, I mean, I, I would uh, imagine it's true that you probably have more people who have studied, you know, human anatomy outside of archaeology. So like people who may have been in medical fields and stuff like that coming into archaeology than veterinarian science people, you know? No, I, I, I see what you mean. I mean, probably. I mean, we've got, uh, in our department, we have someone who used to be a dentist who became an archaeologist and specializes in teeth, so. Yeah, because I can't, can't think of anyone who's sort of in um, animal management or veterinary science that sort of bridged the gap onto zoo archaeology. There may well be, and I'm, um, I'm grossly like forgetting someone, but. I think it's more common for the opposite to happen, where people who have been in uh, archaeology, uh, well, yeah, archaeology, but in, in zoo archaeology, going towards, you know, uh, wildlife management and conservation things, because there's a whole movement of applied zoo archaeology, uh, which kind of makes sense, I guess. There's probably, I don't know. I mean, this always makes me sound bitter, but zoo archaeology is so, you know underfunded and not respected like other parts of archaeology but it's also a case of like um again for lack of a better term making it more relevant because zoo archaeology i believe is absolutely relevant i'm doing a podcast about it but um <laughs> finding ways to use the discipline to also make a change on the animals that are still alive and not just the ones that have died two thousand years ago yeah is also something very important to be looking into yeah of course I just like being better about it. <laughs> you do you. I, I always do me. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I don't know about you. I am uh, really not great <laughs> at um, IDing pathologies on uh, animal bone. Uh, other than like the really obvious stuff uh, and some of the less obvious, I guess, but 
they, they're kind of more common, like tuberculosis. Uh, I, I vividly remember that like that was our pathology lab when I was a master's student is <laughs> they just pulled out like a whole cow that had tuberculosis, oh. which was fun. Arthritis, things like that. I, I can pinpoint disease wise, at least. Uh, what about you? I'm not certain of how good I'd be to pinpoint the exact pathology sort of without consulting a source first. Mm-hmm. I like to think I'm all right of saying, yeah, that's pathology and not taphonomy, for instance. Yeah, which we'll get into later, yeah. but I, I think I can at least do that. But <laughs> yeah, no, especially because I'm in my department, I'm the only zooarchaeologist and everyone else uh, who at least works with bones uh they're all uh, uh, human osteologists so i always feel kind of like left out because they're like oh look you can see you know the vitamin d deficiency in this uh person and i'm like i wish i could yeah. do that <laughs> i wish sure, i could be sure, very specific sure. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fun and they're like alex what are you doing and i'm like i counted like 10 cows <laughs> huge <laughs> Well, that just comes down to your poor life choices. I know. I know. I'm still counting cows. It's very sad. (laughs) But yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely some work. Um, There's been a couple of like nice kind of general manuals out. Uh, More recently was uh, the Shuffling Nags. And Lame Ducks. I love the title. Shuffling Nags and Lame Ducks. I love that title so much. Tag yourself. Are you a shuffling nag or a lame duck? Pick one. <laughs> <laughs> Probably any, both at this rate. Hashtag lame duck, hashtag shuffling nag. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so, it came out like a few years ago. It's so useful. Uh, but other than that, like there really isn't that much um, other than, you know, every so often you have like a very specific uh, case study or something like that. Because it is. It's just like we were saying before, it is just really difficult. You don't really have the kind of uh, comparable material available. But the nice thing is, uh, at least when it comes to trauma, it's slightly more easy and more prevalent. Yeah, that bone definitely broke. Yep, definitely broken. A hundred percent broken. Well, I mean, also because, you know, we get more of like animals that were hunted and killed in some way. Obviously, it is like way more easy to uh, pinpoint that kind of stuff because like, like my favorite example is we have this cow in our department, not a living cow, obviously. I'm just oh shame. I know. Uh, <laughs> we have this. Uh, I think it's a medieval. It's either a medieval or a Roman cow. I don't remember. It's, I don't, who cares? But <laughs> it's a skull, and it's got like a perfect, almost perfect circle in the skull because it would hit by a poleaxe. Ah, oh, them, them, them poleaxes. Them poleaxes, yeah. I think about that all the time because uh, that's how I feel. Hashtag, yeah, hashtag big mood. <laughs> but I guess with pathology, much like um, ritual and archaeology, there's also the, the very simple sort of go-to thing. When there's a, a, a funky bone growth on this specimen you're looking at, when in doubt, chronic inflammation. Ooh. Or if you're if you're me, you just write bone growth. <laughs> Abnormal bone growth. <laughs> What's up with that? Oh gosh, I, literally, I'm like in the middle of writing like my pathology stuff up uh, for my PhD, and it, most of it is just like 
yeah, weird bone growth. Do I know what it is? No. Just wanted to point it out. It's good. This bone doesn't look the way it's meant to look like. Hey, why do it look like that? I don't know. You tell me. Chronic inflammation slash infection. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I'm, I'm more um, partial to fractures slash healed fractures. Because those are like, when you get like a healed fracture on a rib, man, you can really pinpoint those because they are slightly funky looking, but not too well, funky I, looking. I think we mentioned on the sort of like the wild sort of hunted animals episode about yeah. sort of that photo that was making its round on, on the interwebs of uh, that deer that had a um, bone growth around this arrow. Clearly had been shot by an arrow, oh, survived, yeah. and the bone grew around it. Yeah. Which is a thing. No, cool. I, I mean... Not, I, not cool for the deer. I'm surely what you was most uncool for the deer. I'm just thinking about how I wish pathology was that easy. <laughs> that, yep, definitely arrow. <laughs> I can tell you this bone is fractured. I can also tell you what's done it. <laughs> But yeah, I think the kind of unusual stuff, those bone growths and things, uh, I think that's basically what we kind of like lean towards when it comes to ID pathologies. Uh, like I was saying, I, I'm very partial to healed fractures. I don't know why. Like, it's just I think they're just really cool in seeing something that had actually healed on something that's dead. Does that make sense? I don't know. Yeah, well, it's cool. It's also in a very unsettling way. <laughs> yeah, as well. like super morbid. Uh, a, a lot of healed fractures in animals as well as in, in humans a uh, good chunk of the time sort of historically they gr grow back in very weird ways oh yeah there was um i was working on a a, a thing like an assemblage that had a, a chicken bone that had healed it healed like really weird like it wasn't a complete 90 degree angle but it was close enough that i was kind of upset about it Ouch. Yeah, that, that's when I earlier in this episode, I, I mentioned rickets and it's only because that's the one thing that really stuck with me. I took an osteology class, human osteology class, and uh, our lecturer pulled out uh, all the pathology bones she had. And one of them was rickets uh, on a uh, femur, I believe. And it was like literally a 90 degree angle. And that has haunted me ever since. It's been like almost five years. <laughs> Yeah, because I think with, with things like that uh, related to animals, I mean, it was either a case that humans wouldn't do much about it, but even like, you know, depending on which sort of time period you're looking at, they wouldn't necessarily even be sure what to do about it. True, yeah, exactly. Like, my, my chicken's broken its leg. Like, do I put two twigs against it? What do I do? <laughs> but I guess that's also you know talking about healing that's also really interesting because it t tells you a bit about you know this especially when you get deep into the past this animal must have been probably cared for because there's no way it would have lived this long with this injury and that's what yeah, it's something really debilitating because sometimes you know you'd be surprised what animals in the wild can survive yeah true you see the deer with the arrow in the chest yeah, but also to a point, like it implies some degree of care. I mean, either because they, I mean, we we can't really infer on the reason because it could be, and I really care about that chicken, or just because you know I can't afford to get another chicken. I mean, I could eat it, but um, it would probably be better for me if I just keep on taking the eggs. Yeah, 
every day, so I can't really afford to lose a chicken. So I'm going to look after it, I guess. I mean, either way, that still shows significance. Yes, yeah, so I guess we can reconstruct the action, but not necessarily the intention, the reasoning behind yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Unless you know, you're dealing with Roman stuff, and they've probably written about it in their diary or something. Oh, we didn't. We haven't even really brought up the Romans, and you had to bring it up, huh? The Romans and ritual, <laughs> and it's only past one. Uh, yeah, shout out to the listener who promised us a uh, free coffee for a week if we didn't mention ritual. <laughs> uh, I was gonna. Yeah, that's just cheating. Though. Yeah, that's I was just... gonna. I was gonna try <laughs> for for the record. Well, then we'll just let it apply to Alex. Yeah, I can do one more coffee. Are there any Roman taxes you want to talk about that relate to pathology? Yeah, like about that notorious fine that you'd get if you'd not look after your chicken after it broke its leg. That, I, I don't know much about Romans, so that could 100% be a real thing. You can't do this, survey. <laughs> you already tricked me by trying to make me believe crows didn't exist in this country. And you almost fell for I'm it. I'm a very simple person. <laughs> And uh, while we dwell on this simplicity, we shall take a break and uh, be back with you shortly. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code animals every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in at u.s border patrol protecting our borders is more than a job it's a calling agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe if you are ready for a new mission Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back uh, with part two of uh, this month's episode on paleopathology. Yeah, and uh, now we're going to complain for the rest of this segment. <laughs> uh, have you eaten at least? Had some wine. Does that count? Mmm... Does it count, dear listeners? Please tweet at us at Archaeoanimals. Does wine count as food? Hashtag wine meal. I don't know. I'm not very good at making hashtags. Chunky anyway. wine. Chunky wine. <laughs> oh man, love a chunky wine right now. Um, but I think as we mentioned um, in part one, the issue sort of with paleopathology within zoo archaeology is that it's com- compared to human osteology is um, sort of a bit less um, research and looked into because part of the reason why is that we don't tend to have as much comparative material than you would sort of in human osteology. 
Yeah. Uh, and the other reason is because it can actually be really difficult to uh, differentiate between pathologies and other kind of taphonomic marks. Wow. Because we're, I got we're, it. Yes, you've got this, Alex. <laughs> or Alec, <laughs> apparently, because that, that's your name now. I misspelled my name once. <laughs> but yes, and uh, by taphonomy, of course, we mean sort of um, all the factors that sort of took place after death or sort of after, more usually after deposition. So you have to know the remains being moved or just... Um, again modified after death whether it's for butchery cooking working and uh ultimately when they've been deposited yeah and like if all... someone just chucks it down a, a ravine or something well taphonomy well like if they're if they are waterlogged of course that that will change its appearance sort of in terms of color usually waterlogged mm. uh, bones tend to go much much darker if not completely black not to be confused with bones that have been charred, which are also black, just just uh, to be helpful. <laughs> well, super waterlogged uh, bone will also just kind of uh, completely fall apart, depending on what you're dealing with. We refer to uh, the really badly water damaged bone on our site as cheesy bone because uh, it i don't i still don't really understand it it's um lindsay booster who's like our one of our uh, directors of the project and yes i am calling her out on this podcast she refers to it as cheesy bone which i thought was charming but i still don't really understand why well i guess in a way it, it wouldn't be the water per se that does the damage to the bone it's just of course it creates that anaerobic environment so then when you yeah. excavate it and you disturb it that's when it becomes cottage cheese it's uh, god they do without the smell even though waterlogged deposits are kind of smelly yeah no luckily this doesn't have smell but like i just got a bag of them and i like picked them up and went to wash them off and they just crumbled my hand and i was like well well 90 percent gravity it's fine <laughs> that is me i guess 90 percent um because one of the more common sort of taphonomic marks that you do tend to get on bones it's like uh, have you ever noticed those little again technical term those little squiggles mm -hmm. all over the surface of the bone so you think like sometimes like um depending on how deep the grooves are you're like oh is that is that working is that um some sort of a bone loss uh, nope that be roots that's rooting Ugh. damage Brute marks are the worst thing. I actually had a gorgeous crane uh, tibia tarsus that was like really like well preserved and everything. It was amazing. I was so like happy. It was in like a a specific part of the cave, so it was like, oh, this is like a huge thing. And then I saw that there were like grooves on it, and I was so hyped for it i was so excited i was like oh my oh, god no. it was worked it wasn't even root that's the worst part it was um apparently the the blood vessels in the legs of birds can sometimes get really like wrapped tight around the bone that leaves an impression okay well well you see that like with some tibias you do see that in tibias yeah. right, the blood vessels so it leaves little grooves and of course you know if you if you're familiar with it, you know exactly what it is. But uh, to the uninitiated, you'll be like, oh, what's this? Is it cool? No, it's absolutely 100% uncool. Yeah, it's, it's a giant bummer. I was so ready to like write my, my nature paper on 
amazing crane cults in the past, but no. You get that sometimes as well with, um, I guess that counter stephonomy as well, um, mm. gnawing. Yeah. Gnawing or, or chew, uh, it's not tumor, but bite marks. You get that, um, so sometimes like it removes quite a lot of the bone off and you think like at first glance, it might be, oh, like that's some severe bone loss. Oh no, a dog has been chewing on it. And dogs are so much worse because their saliva ends up kind of almost polishing the bone. So it really looks nice and worked. And you're like, oh, no, this is just a dog's chew toy. Still cool. It's nice, though. Yeah, no, I've got some nice astragalus uh, bones that have been chewed up and they're like nice and polished and full of holes. Oh, it looks like a fighter went through someone's dice set. Yeah. (laughs) Cheesy bone. Anyway, (laughs) so yeah. yeah, no, now I, I, I am glad that I, I've now put that cursed image of Cheesy Bone into everyone's brain. Uh, you are all lucky that I don't have an image of it because <laughs> I would 100% have put it in the show notes. Uh, but it was, too, it was too depressing to look at, so I didn't take a picture. But yeah, Cheesy Bone. Now, yeah. now you know about Cheesy Bone. Uh, but yeah, so pathologies and taphonomy can really, you know, conflict with each other and make it like such a pain to like have to go through and like especially if it's taphonomy or if it's pathology that might be really interesting and really vital to whatever you're researching and you really have to like end up looking hard and trying to like like almost like work backwards like okay so the this is probably uh post-mortem taphonomy or something uh this is actually pathology that happened while I was still alive or something like that it's it's a lot it's a lot of detective work I guess because of course like some of the more obvious things like say a fracture that's been healed all wrong that that will jump to you yeah but a lot of what you tend to deal with uh, is a lot more subtle than that you don't usually get sort of the very grim looking specimens if that makes sense so I guess then, uh, the thing that I guess is worth pointing out as well at this stage about pathology, uh, sort of um, what we mean by that on the bones is that um, sort of a disease, and again, presuming it's a disease that does affect the bone, as bone mm-hmm. um, reacting in, in very simplistic terms, just two different ways. So if bone is put under stress, it either creates more bone or it subtracts bone. Yeah, it's just... Ugh. It can be so frustrating. And, you know, you have your, your perimortem trauma and postmortem trauma, which, to be honest, I am not great at figuring out sometimes. <laughs> Was this bone broken before or after death? Which sounds like a silly question, but when you're talking about, you know, uh, is this a bone that was broken and just never necessarily healed properly? Or was this a bone that broke and, like, they died? Because yeah, I think, like, pre-mortem is probably going to be the easiest to identify, because of course, if it's pre-mortem, as in like some time before death, then you're going to yeah. see signs of healing. Now, yeah. with perimortem, so at the time, around the time of death and post-mortem, it becomes a little bit more difficult, because of course, if it, if the insult to the organism or the, the trauma, uh, that is a proper term, the insult to the organism, um, mm. if it happened either around the time of death or soon after death, neither are really going to show signs of healing. Yeah. So it'll be difficult to tell for sure whether it happened around the time of death or at death itself or after death. Um, 
I guess the only thing with post-mortem uh, trauma, it becomes a lot more obvious when it's really post-mortem, if that makes sense. Yeah, because no. <laughs> that, um, if it's sort of perimortem or, or right after the animal passed and say the um, femur was broken, and because a lot of the organic uh, content is still there it's going to break very different differently from when 2000 years later you dig it up gravity happens and you just sort of um, whack it with a mattock yeah you know it, it, it's it's definitely different when you know it's 2014 and you're troweling like you were just taught to do and then you're like oh my god is that a bone and then you keep troweling and then it just shatters into a million pieces a million pieces everyone yeah, and then you uh, kind of shift it to the side and hope people no- notice it. The curse of the cheesy bone. <laughs> that wasn't even cheesy bone. Like, I, I'm just really strong, apparently, and broke right through that, like, uh, cortical bone. Oh, no. It yeah. happens. Yeah, it happens. happens. And then the other thing, uh, speaking, I guess, of cheesy bone, although that's more of an extreme, is, you know, bo- like weathering. Just simple weathering can really look like disease and vice versa like depending on the kind of site you're working on like i've definitely worked on some bones that had uh like severe weathering but also a bit of pathology on it like and it's just you just throw your hands up at that point really and you say a lot of stuff's going on on this bone because especially like uh, it's very um, site dependent. Yeah. If you have really good preservation, then it, life is going to be a lot easier for yeah. you. But then if you go on a site, so say it's got very acidic soil, yeah. which are not very conducive to bone preservation. Nope. Um, so you find uh, a collection of cheesy bones. <laughs> wow, you love that <laughs> phrase. <laughs> I can't stop. I'm gonna have to tell. I'm gonna have to tell Lindsay to trademark it as soon as possible. Yeah, no, it's a a good term. It's a great term. term. I still don't necessarily, I I don't understand how that term came to be. I'll have to ask her. Maybe we'll have to interview her on this podcast just about Cheesy Bone. Maybe maybe some of the research as well. Nah, it's fine. We can only talk about, me and Lindsay are working on the same thing, so we can just talk about Cheesy Bone. (laughs) If you must. (laughs) The fascinating world of cheesy bone. Yes, <laughs> moving on. Look, as we mentioned earlier as well, another issue with pathology um, is that, of course, there's only a limited amount of diseases that do actually affect the bone. Mm-hmm. So that's like, something like, yeah, tuberculosis will affect the bone or rickets, arthritis, my beloved uh, chronic inflammation slash infection. Um, that'll affect the bone. If you flat out break it, well, that's going to show. Yeah. You get an arrow through it, that's going to show. I guess, uh, is it, um, oh, I can't remember the, what the exact term is, but sort of the musculoskeletal. So when you have it, an excessive bone growth forming from sort of repeated so RSIs, like repetitive strain injuries. Oh, gosh. So when you making the same movement time and time again, it will show yeah. on the bone. Because I think that is sort of tentatively being used in human osteology to sort of get a vague idea of occupation. Yeah, we definitely, uh, I've seen it the, the very few times that I've worked on human bone. It's, that's definitely one of the, the things you look out for, especially like, uh, you know, looking at uh, patellas that have been like extremely uh, uh, pathological 
issues going on there. Uh, you can really see the difference between someone who's doing a specific type of hard labor from someone who, you know, isn't. Uh, and I guess that can be tricky with animals, depending on what kind of animals you're looking at. In all fairness, it's tricky with people as well, because a lot of uh, different professions will show very similar marks on the bone. True, yeah, exactly. I guess if, uh, if the, probably if they looked at my skeleton 2,000 years from now, mm -hmm. and probably see sort of signs, I don't know, say of, um, I, I'm right-handed, so they'll probably see, you know, like a lot of bone growth on my right side. Yeah. And they probably think, oh, like a know, farm laborer. Like, ah, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, have you seen your garden? You're kind of close. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> and then they'll look at my skeleton and they'll be like, wow, this person stayed inside most of the time. Huh. It's true. Yeah. It's, it, it's true. That, that vitamin D deficiency again. Yeah. You mentioned earlier. But yeah, no, it's. And, of course, that's also why this is a slightly uh, under-researched area, or not necessarily under-researched, but this area that is still a little bit, you know, not an exact science for us. Uh, because yeah. there's so many pathologies that aren't necessarily going to show up on your bone. Uh, and also, I think that's one of the reasons why we can't just say like, oh, let's turn to veterinary science for this, because a lot of the stuff that we see as someone who's working on deceased or very deceased animals isn't necessarily what veterinarians are going to see in terms of like, you know, pathologies. No, but there'll still be like a good point of reference. True. As yeah, well no, as exactly. I, I feel like farmers, I believe as well, because of course they, they manage sort of livestock day in and day out and they've had to probably deal with their fair share of pathologies and issues with their livestock. So I think they, they probably, farmers probably also have a lot to contribute to the field. We should get more farmers to work with us. <laughs> I'll tell you, like, they, they probably have a better clue, well, definitely than myself. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, I've, like, I, I've read up on farming stuff and also butchery stuff for my zooarchaeological research. So, um, yeah, uh, if, you, if you're a butcher or a farmer, please come into zooarchaeology. We need you desperately. Experimental work is great. Yeah, and of course, like I, I do firmly believe, of course, in it's. I'll be looking sort of at vets, farmers, and like butchers for zoo archaeology. But with any discipline, so someone who's in the trade, uh, in the trade, yeah, is invaluable. So, so if you're researching ceramics, then sort of talking things out with an uh, with a, an actual sort of present day potter, mm -hmm. you've probably got a lot to learn. Yeah, no, exactly about what would work, what wouldn't work. Like, oh, would this, we're going back to zoo archaeology, like, oh, could this be a, um, a butchery of this particular animal? And then a butcher can explain to you why that wouldn't work. And then you can create all the weird and wonderful theories you like, but that, from a, a utilitarian point of view, would not Because a lot work. of the utilitarian uh, reasonings behind things hasn't changed at all, despite, you know... Uh, how old a lot of the stuff that we work on are, you know, th there are those certain cuts that are like the cuts that butchers want to make are going to be more or less the same from uh, back then, you know, uh, farmers who work with animals who are still working with livestock. Uh, for the most part, a lot of it hasn't changed. They'll probably still see the same kind of things. So you're right in that that kind of trade knowledge is super important also uh, experimental zoo archaeology is probably super delicious so you know. but all in all basically just you just, just 
Oh, just just give oh, pathology some love. Well, no, that sounds wrong. Um, give the field of pain with pathology some love because uh, it, it is very useful. And uh, if um, we have better ways of competently IDing pathological specimens, they can actually tell us an awful lot about past relationships between humans and animals. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we'll get into that a bit more when we get to our next segment uh, for case studies. But for now, we are going to take a break. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back. And we're talking about plague and death in this wonderful episode of RQ Animals. So... As with every Archeanimals episode, this final segment is always about case studies. And actually, as a producer, it's one of my favorite parts of the episode. We take all the things that we've been talking about, all the topics and all the little bits of information, and it's now time to put it in context and look at examples from the real world. So without much further ado for myself, take it away, Alex and Simona. Well, the funny thing is that um, it was actually kind of difficult to find case studies for this episode because, again, it's a bit of an understudied field and not necessarily one that you get very specific cases for. But I did my best, I think. Maybe. You did good. I don't know. Thank you. Please, please reaffirm me. Thank you. Anyway, let's, uh, instead of kind of like specific case studies, I thought it might be good to kind of focus on specific types of pathologies that we find in the fields. Uh, so one of them is uh, from research that has been being done in the Balkans, specifically Neolithic Western Balkan sites. And it's looking at animals and work. And I feel like we, we probably talked about this because we talked about domestication a lot, I think. Yes, I think some of the pathologies that we'll be mentioning have definitely been covered in our cow episode. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, there's um, just to maybe say it again, if there's any new listeners or whatever, there is a connection between domesticated species and pathologies. Basically, depending on the kind of pathology we have, we might be able to kind of suss out, you know, how these animals, uh, one, if these animals were domesticated, and two, how exactly they were worked. So the example here would be uh, cattle for traction in prehistoric Europe. So for those who don't know, traction is mostly kind of associated with plowing and cart pulling. Research that's being done in the uh, Western Balkans uh, refers to it more as a specialization of certain animals uh, where you have light traction, which is more of an occasional use of the animal in that way, or heavy traction, which is a very consistent use. 
I guess what that does to the bone, um, it usually um, leads to bone growth. Yeah. So, of course, all this stress and injury that is put especially on the feet um, will result in bone remodeling. Mm-hmm. So, one of the um, sort of more well known cases in cattle is spavin. Yeah. Which again affects the bones of the feet, and that's usually associated with traction. Which, of course, around this part of the world took part place in the prehistoric period all the way throughout the all the way up to the Industrial Revolution, really. And I think some parts of Europe as well are um, going back to using cattle for traction. So I think I was reading about an, an example from Italy, I believe it was somewhere in Italy, where there's some land that is um, particularly hard to work on because it's so wet that if you were to track vehicles on it, you just end up with massive ruts. It's essentially it's next to unworkable. Oh, okay. So they've, they've resorted... Um, no, no, I've got it entirely wrong. It's um, no, it's here in the UK. I'm gonna to have to try and find it and um, mention it on the show notes. Uh, but they're using horses for traction. It is like for those reasons, like it's the the you wouldn't really be able to track vehicles on it. Mm-hmm. So they're using sort of a rare sort of large breed of horse for traction. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, no, that's actually really interesting. And to be fair, like, even though the specific case that you're talking about is about cattle, you know, horses were obviously used as tr- for traction as well. And that's actually, when I read this for the uh, case studies bit, uh, that's actually my immediate association with um, pathologies and domesticated animals is depending on what tools you use. Uh, so like harnesses and bits, for example, you get that uneven wear in uh, teeth, uh, specifically in horses quite frequently. And I feel like that's like the uh, example of that kind of pathology that I always run into. Yeah, I think that, that that's a, a fairly common one. I think you see it mostly in horse. Yeah. That sort of uneven wear sort of it, it, around the premolars mm-hmm. slash molars. Although you can get that as well in other species, um, though that's not necessarily linked to them being worked. But sometimes if they're kept sort of in cramped conditions or in cages and they bite on the bars. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. And that can also lead to sort of this abnormal wear of only like a portion of the teeth. Because, of course, you know, if you have like all the entire dentition is sort of consistently worn down because they'll be indicative of age and diet more than anything. But, of course, when you have some teeth that are not very worn and you have, like, the two premolars that are just completely worn, then you know that there's something pathological going on there. Personally, I think dental pathologies is the one thing that really, like, squicks me out. Like, ugh. I just... You just don't like teeth. I really like teeth. I mean, yeah, no, I, I don't really like teeth. And I think this is, to be fair, I also think this is more of a case with human pathologies. Like, you find a tooth that's got an abscess in it, and you're just like, mm. maybe I also, because I don't like the dentist. So... Uh, it's a trend that I've seen mostly, like, not among zooarchaeologists. I find that a lot of human osteologists really don't like teeth. But I guess I can see like you're more easily because they would, of course, look exactly like your own. So you're more inclined to go. (laughs) And I think, yeah, I think it's also very like it's a kind of pain that like most almost everyone experiences at some point in their life. So if you find like a skull with like some really bad dental pathologies, like I I saw, saw one that basically had the same kind of cavities I had. And ugh, just, mm, no. no. Of course, personally, I Don't really like, like teeth because, of course, they're, they're usually 
uh, incredibly diagnostic. Yeah, no, that's fair. To pinpoint them exactly what truth it is, which side, whether it's upper or lower, the species, like you name it, that teeth are easy. They're cool. And in terms of pathology, of course, uh, while we've gone down this rabbit hole of um, uh, periodontal disease, that's also a relatively easy one to identify in animals. Yeah. One that springs to mind, and of course, you know, applies to animals, but of course, it also applies to humans. When you get tooth resorption, you'll find oh, yeah, yeah, the maxilla. Yeah. So when you lose a tooth, of course, if it's pre-mortem, that is, of course, the first thing that your bone will do is start remodeling and cover the, you know, the, the exposed cavity until that's completely healed up. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you'll see, um, you don't know, in an older animal, provided that, of course, it's been, it, it's lived to a very long, long age and is in some way or another being looked after, you'll see sort of like tooth loss and then that's uh, yeah. uh, with the bone that's remodeled over that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that brings us into our next case study pretty well. So we have this this previous case study that we just talked about, which is kind of, you know, research on pathologies in these kind of domestic animals can really show the variety within uh, work-related pathologies and how if we really take a good look at them, we can maybe differentiate a bit more between like what type of animals are doing what type of jobs, you know, which animals are being raised for this specific job, which is really interesting. And then kind of um, not the opposite extreme, but I guess in a way it kind of is, uh, we have care. So uh, a lot of this episode has been us talking about, you know, uh, an- this animal had this disease or this kind of injury or something like that. But also seeing that these kind of things were healed uh, and that these kind of animals live with these pathologies can reveal a lot about the way we care. And unsurprisingly, this is about Roman dogs. For once, she brings it up. Well, I mean, you know, it, it was, it, I was, I was throwing a bone at you. Ah. Ah, 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 ah. Hashtag Simona's Romans. <laughs> But I guess uh, sort of Romans in the um, Romans, dogs in the Roman period, uh, a prime example of how these domesticates would live way past what would have been the normal uh, lifespan in the wild because of uh, some form or another or care, whether it's just the mere keeping it alive or whether it's an intentional sort of caring, you know, for the animal. I mean, as I said earlier, we cannot make an informed statement on the, the reasoning behind can only look at the evidence of what we've got. One thing, so I guess a survey uh, that has been carried out of dog remains from Roman sites show a number of pathologies found in their remains, sort of from like periodontal disease to arthritis, healed fractures. And of course, um, these could be indicative of both care and lack thereof. Yeah. Because some with the healed fractures, it might be a dog that's hurt his leg and humans look after them. It might be a dog where someone intentionally hurt, broke their leg Aww. for a widow. That's sad. Which, uh, unfortunately, it, it's a thing that happens today, so I'm sure, as always happens since time immemorial. 
Yeah, and obviously research also shows that you have an increase in pathological issues with age in Roman dogs, which, I mean, kind of makes sense. Uh, but also the research that we're talking about specifically cites how smaller toy breeds, which I was kind of surprised had already existed at this point or was like in the process of becoming a bit more popular, uh, would have multiple conditions. So they would need a, a higher amount of care. Uh, so uh, one example was that uh, one dog had lost most of its teeth uh, and had a really high amount of deformation on its jaws. Uh, so it would, the only way it would be able to survive is it would have to be like hand fed by humans. Yeah, because I guess uh, a, a fair amount of that would be due to old age as well. But then I wonder how much of that would also be due um, to the breeding pool. Yeah, that's that what I was thinking. Because of course, if you have a, a very small pool of dogs and you keep interbreeding them with each other, uh, that that's going to cause an issue, but of course, uh, a lot of the pathologies um, can be informed by diet as well. Yeah. So I guess in terms of the, well, um, in that particular case of that dog with sort of the demineralized jawbone, that might be due to very meat-rich meals. Mm-hmm. Although I think what we find more often, uh, we do tend to find sort of cavities and periodontal disease in dogs as well as cats although cats much more recently so uh, and of course it's something that um like cavities uh, like uh, which are usually caused you know by very starchy sugary foods mm-hmm. is something that an omnivore that is more on the carnivore side of life really and a hyper carnivore really should not be having so that comes down yeah. to the diet <laughs> that was given by humans to so say if like, the Romans kept these dogs around and they would just feed them leftovers and throw the odd bit of bread at them, mm-hmm. they would end up yeah, with periodontal disease, which would not really happen in the wild, unless they're scavenging, that is. Yeah. But I guess especially with cats, you don't really True. <laughs> see periodontal disease, we'll say like in farm cats, because they just sort of yeah. like, they, they wander around and uh, well, eat rats. Yeah, and again, it's that just an example of the kind of broader theme that zooarchaeology really deals with, which is the human influence on these animals, whether that's just, you know, something like domestication or even if it's just kind of like care or how they treat these animals. Uh, there's so much you can learn from that. Uh, and completely unrelated uh, to talking about diet and pathology, but when you write about the smaller toy breeds in the show notes, did you? Was there a specific kind of modern dog that you thought of? Pick one. Because I was picturing Roman chihuahuas. I kind of was as well. What about Roman pugs? A chihuahua slash pug. Yay! No? Roman Just, pugs? Uh... Like, I, I would love a Roman pug. You know, like, in the way you like it. It goes with the wee hat, honestly. I mean, I would love a Roman pug. Yeah. It goes with the wee hat, what, honestly. Was it like a pug, a pug that lectures you about stuff, like flying? <laughs> No, like uh, new new conspiracy like theory. Moment. Pliny was actually a pug. Probably would probably wouldn't have lived as long as he has if it, if he'd been Pliny a pug. the pug. Ah! <laughs> Can that be the mascot of the podcast now? A pug called Pliny. I let's see. Yeah. Pug in Roman costume. It'll be on the internet. Pug in Roman costume. Oh god. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. <gasps> what is this show? Oh my god. There's more than one. <laughs> <laughs> what a time to be alive. Oh my god. Oh my god. Wow, this should have been a case study on its own. I'm kind of sad that we're doing this the last couple minutes of the po- 
Guess. No, 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 no. You have to see this. You have to see this. I want your reaction to this. Okay. This, this. All right, folks. This is live reactions to an image. <laughs> I mean, I guess we'll have to put that in the show notes. There are so many of them. Oh, Amazing. I love it. Oh, there's another it. one. There's... Oh, no. Oh, so oh no. This is the thing. So, obviously. We miss out on all of this fun stuff. It's, it's almost sad to think that the Romans never had pugs. I don't know. I'm kind of glad they didn't. Yeah, yeah it's very I mean, sad. kind of messed up dog breeds. We we mentioned that in the dog episode, didn't we? Yes, you, you might say so. Although you see now there's um, some pugs, I think, that are being bred, so they're reverting them back to what they used to look like at the start of the 20th century. Because you find like a lot of the breeds, there's really only the last hundred years, like with German shepherds or bulldogs that have sort of been bred to a very sort of uh, really um, make some traits look really extreme. Sorry, I can't stop looking at this pug. But <laughs> this I, is the I best thing it, I've seen. I think it does. It does kind of like add to that kind of uh, idea of like animals that were uh, looked after past the point that you might naturally think they might have you know, passed away. I think that that kind of, those kind of examples when we see them, it's really, really, really fascinating because I think a lot of people don't really link, you know, behavior to bones. You know, a lot of people don't, in the general public, don't really link what we can infer from certain, uh, like, bones and the pathologies of bones as to what actually happened. So I I think that's a really cool um, example. I think this pug cured my depression. <sighs> I can't stop looking at it. I've literally kind of tuned out on the rest of the podcast. I'm just looking at this pug. Simona, why didn't you bring it back? No, but with, with care, with, with care, like you still see it sort of at present day. Where like if you look at the lifespan of cats and dogs today, it really it by far exceeds what it used to be even 30 years ago. Mm. So I think like um, the care like, does quite considerably extend the lifespan of an animal because so we see that in present day but that was also the case in in uh archaeological case cases i forgot how to english i'm just uh, I'm, I'm, I'm entranced by the yeah point. no this is this ruined me <laughs> as long as i think about for us my life is his puck well don't worry not even we dinner will. We will include it in the show notes. Oh, no, I already put it in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Shall we wrap this up? Like, one should be wrapped up if they're not feeling well? See see what I'm doing there? I'm tying it in. I am wrapped up like I'm not feeling well, but that's because I like being cozy. Ah, fair enough. I I, I I like the cozy life. I'm in a a dressing gown. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I think that was a a episode. Um, as always, you know, uh, follow us on Twitter at Archaeo Animals. Uh, find us on the Archaeology Podcast Network uh, website, or you know, subscribe and uh, tell your friends about us. All the other fun stuff. I don't know what else do we say at the end of these and, things. And tell your pugs about it. Yeah, if you if you have any more Roman pugs, please send us more pictures. Or if you have a Roman costume for dogs, please send it for Sandy. True. Yes. Please, please help us. No, no, no Bastet. She doesn't take to fancy costume very kindly. She probably curse you. Yeah, fair enough. 
you yeah. remember you guys used the hashtags hashtag Simona's Romans and hashtag Roman Pugs for this episode. Yes, please. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pro.